Well, welcome to this launch to, to mark the event, to mark the completion of one of the world's greatest e-books. <laughs> I had the honour of participating in the launch of this, so it's wonderful to be here to chair the wind-up as it were, wind up, get ready to be wound up. Uh, it's my great pleasure to be here, and it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you. This is a debate on the future of rights, which is very appropriate, because it marks the end of a debate on the rights, of a book, sorry, on the rights future. It's certainly an e-book that's been completed in record time, at least as far as academics like me are concerned. The book was begun in October, and here we are in February, and it's done, unheard of. And I know there are a number of contributors in, the, in this room. So this is in many ways a whole hall full of authors, which is absolutely terrifying for me as a chair. But great welcome to you all. I believe the book is partly written as a result of online, a book that is written partly as a result of <coughs> online participation is part of a new movement, which I gather has a name. Do you know what the name is? It's Horizontalism. Now I have to admit, when I was young, horizontalism. However, it's also my great pleasure to welcome our star guest, David Davis, the MP for Colton Price and Howden, who was a minister in the last Conservative government, were you not, in the Foreign Office? Exactly, back again, um, former Shadow Home Secretary, and of course, famously a Tory leadership contender. But I think most of us have the greatest respect for you, David, because of your courageous resignation from the Shadow team. When was it? In uh, June 2008, when you stood in the, this country's one and only, I think, civil liberties by-election, where you won a stunning 71.6%, let's be precise, of the vote. David Davis is least likely to say the Human Rights Act has played a part in keeping the flame of universalism flickering, small for sure, but the Conservatives should not be allowed to snuff it out without at least a fight from everybody who thinks of themselves as of the left. He's least likely to say this because Connor Geerty said. <laughs> My esteemed friend and colleague needs no introduction to all of you. His academic work speaks for itself. But I think um, his contribution as a public intellectual is what we all in this room most value, uh, helping us to understand the debates of our time, as I'm sure he's going to do today. He's least likely to say, we have fired a shot across the bowels of Gordon Brown's arrogant, arbitrary and authoritarian government. And he's least likely to say it because David Davis. <laughs> Connor will start by saying a few words about the rights future. Let me get it right this time. The new book is called The Rights Future. Before moving on to debate the future of rights, is it left or is it right? He's going to uh, introduce his, uh, wind up his e-book for just a few minutes. Then he's going to debate the motion for 15 minutes. David is going to have exactly the same amount five of time minutes. to respond. <laughs> so easy to demolish, you think? We'll see. And then I'm opening it out to all of you horizontalists. We should have about 35 minutes, I hope, for everyone to contribute. So hold fire now and get ready to engage. Connor, thank you. Thank you very much.
you very much, Francesca. And uh, David, I think it's uh, terrific that you launched. Uh, I asked David to do this some time ago, and he, he likes to keep his, you know, his profile very high in the field of civil liberties, so and human rights. So he thought he'd have a go at the prisoners <laughs> as a way of kind of building up momentum for this event. Uh, and I said to him, he's so charming, he persuaded Jack Straw, who is the creator of the Human Rights Act, to join with him in his destruction. I think Jack may be now realizing the magical powers of David Davis that have drawn him into this web, which Jack doesn't fully understand. But, uh, uh, well done, David. I totally opposed him. Uh, I, I would be uh, inclined to give prisoners multiple votes on the basis that their lives are pretty lousy and they have little else to do and will read the manifestos more carefully than most people. That's, five, I, that's five reasons for no. Right? <laughs> that counts in his three and a half minutes presentation. But <laughs> uh, uh, I totally believe in his entitlement not only to make his points of view immature and trivial, though they invariably are, but also <laughs> to argue that uh, the Human Rights Act should be repealed. I think it's absolutely right that these things should be argued. And uh, I welcome the opportunity to engage not only on the rights and wrongs of each topic, but on the rights and wrongs of the strategic vision that underpins the topics. I believe in politics. Uh, and we're going to get on to the rights future and then the debate. Uh, this House believes that the future of rights is left, not right, because that in itself assumes something about rights which a lot of people don't assume, which is that it is a political project. I make that assumption, and moreover, I try and send it in a certain political <coughs> direction. So this project, which began on the 6th of October in this building with Francesca and also with David Lamy, uh, and Costas Duzenus, my friend from SOAS, was an effort to experiment with a new form of communication. And the new form of communication was this capacity that the web now gives those of us who work in the university to reach uh, a vaster audience than is possible in the university, and an audience that is not necessarily financially or intellectually <coughs> equipped, both being essential, to join us. And the idea behind it was that I would write an essay every Monday morning, or put it on the web every Monday morning, and then people, anybody all around the world would respond, and then I would, I would respond to their comments, and then move on to the next one. And they're also, because academics can't keep quiet, a bit like David Davis listening to somebody's speech, I also have a whole lot of sidetracks where I wander off into other issues. And uh, I also have common tracks, which are longer essays, which are slightly more academic. So the whole idea was to produce a full package oriented around this manifesto, which reflects the political dimension to our subject. I have these 10 ideas, and the first one is the one we're debating today, human rights, our social democratic politics for our post-political age. When I described all this to David as we were walking down here, uh, David uh, was very much taken with the horizontality of the project, what we both called it the laziness of the project. <laughs> <laughs> uh, horizontality usually is something else in my mind. Uh, but laziness. Well, you can't make it again. <laughs> laziness, I understand. Uh, and I, I have to say, I'm very, I'm very grateful to those of you in the room. A number of you are here have contributed. And I don't know who are. It's kind of an amazing, exciting thing that a lot of people I know but don't know. Uh, let me tell you some of the facts about these five and a half months or so of essays. 
we've had a total of 14,794 visits. So we've had over 14,000 people come and look at the thing. Uh, we've had, you know, all right, uh, that's an average of 109 a day. We've had 34,833 page views. Uh, We've had it come to us from 212 <coughs> different places and from a huge number of different types of machines. Uh, I think one of the most interesting ones is we've, we've had comments from 121 countries, uh, which is remarkable. Burma, Saudi Burma, uh, <coughs> Cambodia, Lebanon, Nepal, Yemen, South Africa, uh, much of Africa, uh, much of South America. And uh, we've had a total of 456 comments people who have not only read, but who have uh, become involved in the project, who have added their point of view, who have then in turn stimulated, for me, some kind of response. Uh, not a single comment in the whole five and a half months has needed to be expunged. I did, of course, have a capacity to remove people who say something like, Never mind that rights argument, but have you visited my sort of And <laughs> <laughs> I fully expected a whole variety of those. Uh, I got nothing like that. Uh, and uh, it's been an amazing, uh, an amazing vindication of the trust that you would have in the general public that the comments have been so thoughtful and uh, so engaged. Uh, over 2,300 people visited more than 50 times. More than 50 times. Uh, and uh, of the 456 comments, uh, which came from scores of people, many repeat commentators, of course. Uh, I'm very pleased that we have some in the audience. I'd like to ask people to put out their hands if they did answer to any of the webs or engage in any way. Let's see, who's actually participated? Now, this is fascinating. I know some of you. I have no idea which ones you are. <laughs> some of you have been really annoying. Uh, and we should at some point perhaps have a special event where uh, we can all know who we are. Uh, you can see a, a, some of us have done that. And maybe when Francesca's invited comments a bit later on, uh, Francesca might ask those of us who have contributed whether they want to contribute here and then say who they are. And it would be fascinating for me to know who you are. Those of you who did put your hands up just now, thank you very, very much indeed for having made it possible. I was anxious that nobody would say anything, that it would be just endless essays into the void, uh, but it has not been, and that has made it a very rewarding, as well as a somewhat exhausting project. <laughs> now, the motion, or not motion because I'm not going to vote, but the argument is that the future of rights is left not right. And those of you who are aware of the project will know that that is the <coughs> underlying message that I've sought to communicate. And I want to talk about this in the context of this argument. Human rights are social democratic politics for our post-political age. Essentially, that is the one-line take-home argument in the whole thing. By social democracy, I mean uh, an approach to society which might previously have been thought of in ideological terms as a reflection of a socialistic perspective on the world or one rooted in an understanding of radical justice uh, but today is best understood 
in the language of human rights. Why do I say that? I say that because human rights as an idea reaches increasingly into the social. Increasingly, ideas about a just society, ideas about an un overused, banal term, a fair society, banal because so easily manipulated, are best given a sharp edge by the use of the language of human rights. And therefore, when you look at topics about inequality, in poverty, in access to social services, the way in which you capture the importance of these uh, subjects for people, the way in which you capture the obligation that we have to provide basic standards of living for people, the way in which we capture their entitlement as humans to these services from us is through the language of human rights. Take, for example, the recent report, which is absolutely shocking, into the health service by the ombudsman, our ombudsperson, which was revealing of staggering levels of disregard for and contempt of people in no position to defend their life standards in vulnerable environments. And you absolutely ask yourself, where is the moral dimension to this discussion if the moral dimension is not rooted in their rights as persons to be treated with the same levels of dignity as are accorded to the powerful and the affluent. And I think the language of human rights, therefore, is a strong social language. It's also a strong language to capture new understandings of justice. And some of these tracks go quite far towards understanding uh, animal rights and even towards the whole question of environmental rights. The rather stimulating title to be trees have rights, but I think they're the trees. Too far for you? I think after yesterday, Mr. Cameron thinks they do. <laughs> <laughs> it pays to work on jokes like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we rehearse it three times. <laughs> <laughs> the democracy bit mustn't be forgotten, because this is where I share an awful lot with David Davis. <coughs> the democracy bit is a very important part of the human rights bit, but less easily understood. It is not simply about formulating what you believe to be right and imposing it on society through judges or through philosophers. It's about growing it through the democratic culture. And so therefore, I say that human rights, including social rights, including these cutting red edge rights, is a way of informing the discourse of politics. It occurs within, does not stand outside politics. So I strongly believe in the sovereignty of the representative assembly. I said right at the start, I welcome opportunities to defend the rights model against all comers without praying in aid some supra body like a judge's community to protect me from the people. I'm sure we can win within. It follows that I accept and acknowledge the contingency of social, uh, economic, civil, and political rights, and therefore must accept the contingency of the Human Rights Act, albeit I think we should keep it for reasons I'll mention at the end of this talk. That's why I believe the future of <coughs> rights is left. Why I do not believe it is right, why I believe we should resist rights versions that come from the right is because I think there's a misguided approach to liberty on the part of the right. Now David can speak for himself, and I'm not directing this at David, 
But there is a thread in our culture, which I would characterize, and one of these tracks is about it, is I would characterize as a libertarian thread. And it's a thread to our approach to society, which says that we as individuals should not be in any way constrained by the state. That as an individual, we should be free to do what we want to do. And there's something compelling about that negative approach to rights. Negative in the sense of resistant to interference with oneself. I profoundly oppose that version of rights because I think it shows, firstly, no real understanding of power. No understanding of the relative relationships of power <coughs> that cause some people to have tremendous freedom and therefore to desire never to be interfered with and other people to have no chance in life unless they are assisted in, the, in their life opportunities and in the securing of those life opportunities. I think, for example, it's not a coincidence that one of the great phrases of these community of libertarians is that an Englishman's home is his castle. Because you deconstruct that, what is it? It's a man in a castle. It's very keen on, on the old women's talk. Now I'm slipping it in here, Christina. So you're not uh, there's, a, there's a gender point coming through in the talk. And also, it's a castle, you know. And what better sums up the assumptions of the libertarian? We're all rich. We can all have lunch in the Savoy. Uh, I think it's a very dangerous approach. It's also uninterested in the universal. It's uninterested in outside our space. And it ends up, through its opposition to regulation, opposition to governmental engagement, very subversive of reform. And I think one of the biggest things that went wrong with Labour was they lost the argument about the importance of state intervention to promote the opportunities of all to flourish. And they therefore allowed a kind of Daily Mail, Francesca's a great piece coming out on this, a Daily Mail Guardian coalition to undermine, to undermine a, a, a government as authoritarian, when in fact it was often seeking to improve the situation for most people in the country. Uh, so I'm opposed to the right, uh, and I'm in favor of my left social democratic brand of human rights. I, I have I got a few more minutes. Another five, maybe six, six, six. Loads of time. I'll send some of it to David Davis. Five and a half now. <laughs> <laughs> it's always worth a minute or two. Four minutes. Digs at David at the beginning, so he's kind of had an extra minute. So I'll give you. Oh, five. oh, excellent, excellent. So those digs, those digs don't count. It's like injury time in an Oscar bus alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yesterday, the uh, the prime minister. Uh, announced in the course of a question put to him, I think, in Prime Minister's question time, that uh, the government was reluctantly uh, introducing changes to the system of the sex abuse register. Is that what it is? Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that he doesn't have to do that because the Human Rights Act, uh, which is the legislation that led to the Declaration of Incompatibility by the, was it House of Lords then? Supreme, Supreme, Supreme Court, in this case, uh, does not require government to act to comply with the judgments of the courts on human rights. And the reason that I am a supporter of the Human Rights Act, UK Human Rights Act, 
The reason why I think it works from the social democratic point of view is because it's democratic as well as social. And therefore, it does not insist that government declare, that government follow the, its judgments on what is and what is not an infringement of the Human Rights Act. And it was exactly right, therefore, to pick the most famous case that when the House of Lords declared <coughs> the detention of suspected international terrorists uh, in Belmarsh to be a breach of the convention, they only did that. They only declared it. Nobody was released from prison, and it was Charles Clark, I think, afterwards as Home Secretary, who introduced a new system which allowed those people to be moved on to a different regime. House what? House, uh, well, I think, what's the, the relevant euphemism? Control now? Control. The Lib Dems' contribution to politics. Something Oh, right. Oh, yeah. The Lib Dem manifesto, as I remember, was we have everything to say, but please can we call it something else? Yes. <laughs> and the Lib Dems are an important part of the story with which I'm going to end. Because why did the Prime Minister, I'm indebted to Francesca Cook for this point, why did the Prime Minister choose yesterday to declare how sickened he was by the need to implement a decision that he didn't need to implement at all? <laughs> he could have said, couldn't he, that the Human Rights Act actually doesn't require us to act. We have looked at it very carefully, and we choose not to act. And then people like myself would have said, you should act. And there would have been a debate about action. <laughs> That's not what he's done. So something's going on here. The Human Rights Act is being wheeled onto centre stage in order for it to be attacked. Allied to this <coughs> is a slightly different issue, which is the prisoners' voting issue. It's slightly different because it's coming out of the European Court of Human Rights, and the resistance, therefore, is to a decision in Strasbourg rather than a decision at home. And these two are combining to make the front page of our newspapers now on a regular basis. Why? Why has the British Prime Minister, on both the prisoners' voting case and the sex offenders case, led public opinion in its assault on the Human Rights Act? Well, why has he chosen a conference on terrorism in Munich to speak about multiculturalism? Why has he decided that what we need to go for is something that he calls a muscular liberalism in order to maintain a robust sense of English identity in the face of the threat of multiculturalism. What is going on here? Why is the Prime Minister of this country being so determined to define a kind of identity to which others have, into which others have to fit? Why is he attacking the Human Rights Act when he doesn't, on this case, at least have to? Why the assaults on Strasbourg? I think that politics is changing in this country. I'm completely unafraid of politics, but we need to fight in politics. Because I think what's happening, I think this is probably my last point, apart from my remarks about the Lib Dems, is, which I always keep to the very end. <laughs> <laughs> One minute. I've lost you too, actually. <laughs> I think I've heard a joke if there's a laugh. Welcome, welcome. Uh, is that. <laughs> I thought that Welcome um, to the Shakespeare Theatre. This is taking hard on the too far. Someone else is coming from outer space. Didn't the coalition promise to end it? Not for me or you. As unemployment goes up, as the public spending is manifestly not being brought under control, 
as inflation rises and interest rates rise, as the public sector is decimated, as all the services which we took for granted are being removed and cut back, the government needs a diversion. It needs a cultural war. It needs front pages about foreigners. It needs big debates about identity. It needs a huge argument about sex offenders. It needs to bash the prisoner because that will fill the space in the newspapers, on the media, which would otherwise be filled by the calamitous impact of a government which is dedicated for ideological reasons to the destruction of the social rights that are underpinned by the rights arguments in this country. We need to be aware that we are being manipulated into a situation where we have to fight these cultural wars as a diversion from the attention that would otherwise be given to what truly matters the state of people's economic, financial, cultural, and social circumstance. Now, where are the Lib Dems? Where are the Lib Dems? How can the Prime Minister... Minus one minute. <laughs> how can the Prime Minister be able to make the remarks he made yesterday and not have a huge statement by the Lib Dems, who are the leaders in the field of entrenching human rights, who argued for decades for a full Supreme Court with a written constitution, with a Supreme Court on the American model. Why have these people, whose whole identity was freedom, human rights, gone so silent? It's a complete mystery to me, other than being explained away by their total lack of any maturity in their identification of their policies. And that they have to go through the implications of actually being in power. That would be the kind explanation for it. But we wait to see what the Lib Dems say, who were so committed to human rights a year ago, about the possible destruction of the Human Rights Act in the months ahead. Minus five. I think that leaves you with about four minutes here. Thank you very much. Horizontalist movement. <laughs> 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 it's, 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 it's got so it's sense appeal. It's got, it's got that sort of you know, novelty, ambiguity, as you call it. Good work. Good work. Now, uh, just pick up one point that, that Connor said. This point about, uh, and then we, uh, we are going to disagree about what right time is, but but this point about what I think is probably the distraction argument. You know, the, the sort of social democratic distraction argument of. Uh, when you've got problems on the work, the public spending front and so on, use this exercise. Well, actually, in that respect, I'll agree with it. When we were having big battles over rights, when I had my bias, and I had lots of very smart-ass um, 
Westminster So in one respect, what Connor said, and only one respect, what Connor said is right. And that is, this is an important time for rights. Not because of the social rights that he would, I would argue, not rights that he would argue are, but because that very distraction will make it very attractive to do things as he accuses Mr. Cameron of doing, I'm sure it's not true, he accuses Mr. Cameron of doing, of using this as a distraction. Uh, because the natural soundbite instinct, not the normal instinct of the British people, but the soundbite instinct is, yeah, of course we should lock up and th throw away the key for sex offenders, of course we should do this or this or that or the other to some unpopular group. And uh, so it is very important to get this right. And of course the Lib Dems are in coalition and alliance with us, so I'm going to be nice about them, ish. Um, <laughs> but I'll say this. Um, one of the problems that we had when I was Shadow Home Secretary uh, and I dealt with the Lib Dems was they said in terms to me, the only term we can fight is in your shadow. In other words, they did not want to be accused of being soft on terror or soft on crime or whatever. So when yours truly stood up and said something about controllers, they could get away with it because it wasn't terribly plausible to accuse Tories of being soft on those things. Um, and actually that's a rather sad set of affairs that um, the problem uh, in our society is people don't fight hard enough. I mean, I sometimes quite cruelly say when uh, uh, people like Connor attack, uh, attack the right as being the defender of the uh, uh, defender of rights, I sometimes say, well, you know, if, it, uh, if uh, freedom in this country depended upon, uh, well, Guardian reading vegetarians like Connor there, uh, <laughs> then... Besides your chair, eh? What? <laughs> yeah. So people like polite then we'd be speaking German by now. I mean, it's, it's simply, it's simply not a single party issue. This is not a single party issue. It's not a single ideology issue. It's an issue that extends right across the uh, the political spectrum and has done for two centuries. So. Uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, let, let me engage in the terms of motion, because I don't want to get into the sort of Oxford thing of defining this and defining that, um, uh, right or left. What I'm going to distinguish it as really is, if you like, individualist versus collectivist, and, 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 and put Connor in the collectivist corner, uh, and uh, try and address this from uh, the basis that he attacked it. He talked about negative rights. That's a phrase, I think, from Isaiah Berlin. Uh, or Irving Berlin, one of the other reasons. 
But from Isaiah Berlin, about negative and positive rights. Negative rights are the ones I will talk about in a second. Positive rights tend to be prescriptive rights like. Is there a problem? Can't people hear me? Is that. I think people probably. Frank, I think we might need this one. Yeah. Is that? All right. You mean nothing else so far as recording, so you can't tell me the camera. You're up there, is it? Um, anyway, uh, so uh, negative rights. Well, they're actually terribly important. They sound, it sounds rather pejorative. Well, what are these negative rights? Well, they tend to be the rights that restrict what the most powerful people can do. Now, in this country, most of the time, not entirely, the most powerful are the government. So they tend to restrict what the government can do. Let's go through what they are. Now, they can't imprison you without trial, or in a more modern context, lock you up for 90, 42, or 28 days without uh, being charged. <coughs> they can't uh, try you without a jury, or in a more modern context, uh, put you on a control order without you even knowing what the charge or what the evidence is against you. They can't uh, search our homes without a warrant, or in a more modern context, search your computer without a warrant. Uh, or indeed collect all your emails and your text messages and your web accesses, which of course are the things that the last government was going to do, and to some extent the current government is talking about as well, the so-called information management program. Uh, they can't censor our newspapers. I don't know how many of you followed our campaigns against super injunctions by powerful people. Uh, they can't force us to incriminate ourselves or indeed cooperate with other countries that might torture us to incriminate ourselves. They can't um, exercise arbitrary uh, power without the will of Parliament, even if it is instructing universities to take certain students and not others, which is the, uh, the most latest uh, operation of executive power without the will of Parliament. Now, the reason I gave you the classical sort of Benthamite, Burkean definition followed by the current example is to make the point you that this is not a historic view of rights, this is a futuristic view of rights. These are the rights that actually matter today. And you neglect them at your very great risk. You take them for granted at your very great risk. And the simple truth is that if you look back, the people who very often espouse the sorts of things that Connor espoused ended up doing something rather different. I mean, I suppose Robespierre is your original uh, <laughs> uh, the first lefty. Um, and if you read the declarations that went with the French Revolution, of course, uh, you see all these wonderful things which ended up with the aristocrat being guillotine, which is famous, but they were the well-known ones. It didn't allow for the thousands of others who were actually simply drowned the opponents of the regime, who weren't aristocrats, who didn't know it. But vast numbers of people were killed off the back of that because of the uh, foregoing their rights. And we can move on through Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot. Uh, I mean, take Stalin. I mean, Stalin, well-known mad genocidal leader. He started the, the, the purge very shortly after the Soviet constitution was written. And you probably use it as a reference point, Connor, in your lectures to tell you what sort of thing it should look like. You know, it really is a modern liberal constitution, but it didn't protect anybody because it didn't have the structures, the courts, the balance of power, the, the restriction of power in the state, which is so important. And that's why it's important. And if you, and if you want a measure of being important today, it's not just, again, it's not about history. If you look around the world, there are more countries like Egypt than there are like Britain, 
in population terms, in numbers. We are unusual. You know, and I know, I, of course I do have a castle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's an island. The simple truth is that we, 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 are, we, have been, we are incredibly lucky. And, that's, and we just shouldn't allow English exceptionalism, to speak of sort of an American phrase, to, to sort of squint our vision, that we don't see what the risks are out there simply because our country has been just dead lucky for a few centuries um, because of its institutional structure that's uh, protected us. So my argument today is that we should focus on defending and protecting those rights um, and uh, not focus on pretending things that are rights that are not. Uh, and really that's, that's uh, extremely important from, from my point of view. Um, now, there are of course lots of non-rights that claim to be rights. Now, funnily enough, the one thing that made it through my spam filter was something about Constantine. I mean, did you, I don't know how many of you followed uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, thing, but the, uh, he did make this one point that Constantine, King Constantine, or his family, I'm not sure which he was, had been given a, uh, they, they'd taken their case uh, of the confiscation of their property where they were expelled by the colonels the European court, and they were given £13 million. Pounds. Now, I'm a believer in property rights, but even I think that's daft. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and that's simply a demonstration for me of the misuse by the European court, a very sloppy, slapdash court, by the European court of human rights to do something which actually give rights a bad name. The second one, Connor himself talked about, which was this issue of uh, the prisoners' uh, right to vote. Now, it is quite an interesting issue because these rights actually aren't universal. I mean, they are universal in the sense they should apply to everybody irrespective of their background, but they're not universal in the sense they reply, uh, apply to everybody irrespective of their behaviour. And that's an important distinction for me. So when you become a prisoner, when you are convicted, when you're just simply banged away by the state because they, because they think you're you might know a terrorist, but when you're actually convicted, then you do lose certain rights. Obviously, the right to liberty, right to, right to do what you want, included in that is the right of association, a very fundamental right uh, within both the UN Convention and the European Convention. But it goes, you know, and there's no argument. I mean, I don't think anybody's yet going to argue, maybe another 10 years, um, unless Connor takes it up. Um, uh, that, you know, we should allow prisoners to talk to who they like, when they like, where they like, and voting is one of those. And my argument there was, again, not just that it's Parliament's judgment, which it should be, but also because you are actually t t telling nine out of ten people in Britain, these rights are silly rights. These are the sorts of things that lefty lawyers get up to, and so on. And I think it's very important. When we had the campaign on torture, I don't know if any of you followed the campaign on torture, the the reason I got involved was I was rung up by journalists. And he said, we want to get some coverage for something. I said, what do you mean? You're the journalist, I'm not. And he said, well, we've got this issue of this man, Binyan Mohammed, who had been tortured, and, and he told me the case, and he told me the background, told me what had been going on in court. And I said, what's the, what's the problem? And he said, because everybody thinks it's just got up by a bunch of lefty liberal lawyers. And you know, nobody calls me a lefty liberal lawyer, so I, when I ran with it, it ran. Now, that, but, but the, the point there is, you know, you can destroy the 
Democratic viability is the very thing you're talking about. Connor talked about uh, democracy and you know, using democracy, using politics, but you've got to use it sensibly if you're going to defend the things that matter. The last one, student audience, I thought this will, this will be sort of relevant to you because you know, Connor talks about uh, economic rights and, and other service rights of the state. I voted uh, against my own party on tuition fees. Um, it was, a, as you can imagine, a fairly uh, interesting punch-up. And, the, um, and the, uh, I, know, I actually believe that people who are able to make use of university education should get a free education. That's my view. Very simple. But it's not a right. Because it competes with other uses of the money. It competes with the person who's going who's to uh, have a disability and need, need that. Done. It competes with the health service. These are the decisions that are made in a democracy. They are not, if you make them rights, then you can't make a hierarchy out of them. You can't actually say, well, we're going to do this and not that. It's the old libertarian argument, in fact, about, you know, my fist and your nose. That's where my freedom stops. Well, in fact, when you talk about these social spending issues, every single movement is at somebody else's expense in, in public spending those anyway. So that's that. Yeah, but there's another problem. And this is where Colin and I really part company. One we, more minute. That's, that's just about long enough to tell you. Um, the, there are, the, the, the big issue has always been that the more you concentrate power in the hands of the state, the more you make the most dangerous threat to rights powerful. And so the left, the, the, the left of centre argument, if you like, is to increase the power of state to do the things that Colin wants to do, perfectly understandably. It dilutes important rights in public attitudes, and it also gives more power to the collective versus the individual. And that is something which is what's used to legitimise many of the bad things that are done in defeat of rights. There's a quote from, it's, it's often attributed to all sorts of people, Thomas Jefferson to Barry Goldwater, but actually it was said by that rather dull person, Gerald Ford, uh, when he said a government big enough to give you everything you want is strong enough to take everything you have. And that isn't just a comment about your assets or your money, it's a comment about your freedom of action. And that's why I think this argument between the collectivist versus the individual is incredibly important. And why I think the dangerous way to go is to make the most, <coughs> the most dangerous threat to your rights more powerful. Thank you very much. given me your most likely to say quotes. So Connors is, I profoundly oppose the misguided approach to liberty on behalf of the right, the libertarian thread, in which we should not in any way be bound by the state, including providing fair access for students to universities. He might have said if he wanted to win you all over, <laughs> and he could have said and meant and did nearly say. And David Davis, uh, people who have um, said the sorts of things Connor says include Robespierre, first lefty, <laughs> and Pol Pot. Now Guillotine. It's supporting the guillotine and drowning and knocking down castles in Ireland. <laughs> I'm now opening it to my horizontal friends. Um, what I want to do.
is try and show you how hip I am. And I've been trying to work out how we might do this in a slightly different way than these things are normally done with questions from the floor and then work, uh, summing up from the speakers. What I was thinking first of all is to, to have a vote and see uh, which of you support and which of you oppose the motion before we open it up to the wider debate and then have a, a, another vote at the end if anyone's changed their mind. I'm also going to ask anyone who's contributed to the book to get in there first with their comments. I'm not going to say like people like me usually say, questions only, no comments, no comments, but I am going to stop you if your comment goes beyond one minute. And I'm going to let the debate flow. I'm going to encourage you to respond to each other as much as to our motion proposal and opposer. Um, and I'm going to give them a chance to come back when you say something that particularly speaks to something they said that they're dying to apply to, and perhaps give away with a uh, summing up at the end. Is that okay, guys? Good. Good. Let's, let's have it a go. Let's give it a go. So first of all, let's have a vote. An indicative vote, I think it's called. The future of rights is left, not right. Who agrees? Yeah, well, you're not an LSC for nothing, are you? No, that's the power of my argument. LSE stands for left of socialist education. Now let's see, let's run it. Now let's see who opposes the motion, the left, the future of rights is left, not right. Now that's the force of argument. <laughs> <laughs> and now, uh, contributors, all sorry, distinctions. Sorry? I wish to abstain. Oh, you're quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Five, six, five, five? Yes, well, that's LSE for you too. <laughs> right. Contributors, authors among you. I'd like to see a show of hands, first of all, of how many of you want to say something. So I've just got an idea. Right, one, two, so we go one, two, three, four, and then I'm going to open it up wide, more widely. Actually, we'll do it for ease, you know, two of you there, because you sit near each other, then there, and then there. Oh, uh, I'm very you thankful. Say who you are. Oh, sorry, I'm there. Uh, so you're now about to out yourself. Okay, uh, <laughs> I, I out myself as Roland McRae from the University of Reading. And, um, my question for Connors, if you, if you define, uh, the reason I abstain is human rights, I think, have to be neither left nor right. If you define human rights or fundamental rights as a social democratic project, although I am a social democrat, I recognize there are reasonable people who are not. And you are actually inviting the, the destruction of the Human Rights Act if you, if you, if, if you define uh, the project in those terms. Because we have to recognize that lefty people have got it very wrong. We're sitting in LSE, founded by George Bernard Shaw and the, the Webbs, who, when having seen Stalin's slave state, thought it was a marvel. And we have to recognize that the left can get things wrong too, and human rights have to have, any theory of human rights have to have within it, an impediment to the realization of utopian polit political projects. That's why they became so strong after World War II, because of the Nazi and uh, communist utopian projects and suffering they caused. Um, I just wonder how you then, if, if you define in those terms, also how you, um, how we, you don't defundamentalize human rights. Sorry, uh, because if you define everything or a wider version of things as rights, then nothing is a fundamental right and everything is a right. And actually then we might as well just abandon the whole idea of fundamental rights altogether. Finally, one tiny thing about the court of human rights has not said that prisoners have to vote. They have said that there are two rights, the right to liberty and the right to vote. 
you need to take separate decisions in relation to each. That's it. I think it's, a, it's been very much misrepresented. Okay. To pass the mic down to later. I have to say, all abstemious, what do you call it? People who abstain. I was thoughtful of that. I think they'd be glad for a new abstention party. <laughs> it's called UKIP. Yeah, my name is Sally Ann Way. I'm in the Law Department at LFC. Um, I just have one quick question about your phrase, a government big enough to give you what you want is big enough to take everything you have. And I just wondered why the right focuses only on the state as a powerful actor when we live in a world of banks that are bigger than states, of transnational corporations that are bigger than states, which affect people's daily lives. Uh, we've seen massive redistribution of wealth towards the banks and, um, and affects um, standard of living, not so much as I agree in our country, but in many other countries around the world that don't, are not as lucky as us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have to admit, you say sorry, my name is Christina, I'm not a member of the LSE, I'm rotheningly grateful to be allowed to contribute to something like this. I think Connor's been fantastic and it's a wonderful idea. However, <laughs> I, I didn't think I was, well I did think I was a fan of you up until a week or so ago. So much that you said today um, is very much the point and I find myself strangely disagreeing with Connor on the fundamental question which is about the state because at the moment we live under an unrepresentative government. The number of people who voted for it are minimal. The number of people it represents are minimal and I've just been, I'm also fascinated by language. I don't know, I keep coming back, what do you mean? If you're talking about human rights you can't have trees, I'm sorry. And Francesca, I'm just rereading your article, nowhere do I find the word fight. And I think it's particularly interesting that um, when the macho military male, sorry, I'm getting back at the UK crap, gets going, words like fight come out. I would like to claim the rights to which I am entitled. And that's the kind of language I want to hear from the women. And I've said this to Connor as well, there were not enough women contributors. And my whole point has been about where are the women in the women's comments? They bring a different dimension. And I don't want to go on at length, so I'll just mention um, something that happened at the TEDs. Apparently Bill Gates was in Saudi Arabia and he was facing a room full of people and they said, do you think we're ever going to make it into the 21st century? And Bill Gates looked at the room, it was divided into men on one side, women on the other, and he said, not while you neglect 50% of your resources. Thank you. Mike, Colin? Okay. Uh, my name is Colin Harvey. I'm Another academic from Queensland. I use my own name when I meet the first. That's just my naivety and engaging. I should have invented some some other name. But really, I, I think I want to maybe draw out what unites the, the the people at the front today, which I thought. That's no fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, just to commend Connor for the project, you know, it's just the, the dynamism, energy, and sheer will to, to get it to completion is just remarkable and, and incredibly admirable, and also shows a very practical and personal commitment to the ideals that he's espoused for a long time. It's, it's
just want to draw together then and, and, and push that forward a bit. I think what, what links both speakers is the commitment to a politics of rights and a politics of legality about rights as well. And I think what concerns me is a human rights culture that's only based on an elite or establishment imposition of rights. And that can be politics, it can be judges, it can be universities. You know, the, the risk with that sort of politics of rights that is only about an elite and an establishment, judicial, legal, or political is, that then when the, when the forces that we're trying to oppose come upon us, the culture will not be there to resist it. In other words, what, what, what united the presentation was the sense in which people are important to growing a culture of rights from the bottom up. Because any culture of rights, and David used the example of the Soviet Union, that is not embedded in a societal context where people see themselves as having a responsibility to defend it, will be in big trouble. The second for me, and this is why I voted for Connor, is that sometimes I worry now that the language of human rights is used so often, I almost feel we should ration it in a very sort of authoritarian way. <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that... You've got the authoritarian vote. <laughs> but, but then I thought twice having her drinks, but... but uh, the sense in which it is so overused today, and the sense in which Connor's project is subjected to, to, to detailed analysis, but the sense in which if you say you believe in human rights, uh, it means something tangibly about the society that you're in. You cannot be satisfied at an individual or collective level if you're living with injustice uh, as well. And the origins of human rights, strangely, in the totally administered world of human rights that we live in, where we have human rights commissions, human rights courts, we have UN bodies, we have institutions all over the world, the origins of rights gets lost. You know, why we have them in the first place. And that's why I think what united you both was a really personal and practical commitment to a politics of rights in your variety of ways, and both made very historical references to the origins of rights, where these things come from, why we should argue for them, defend them, and even fight for them when needs be. But I suppose then the, the question that that raises, me, raises for me then is, if you believe in a politics of rights, that takes you back to a representative branch of government, and do we need to do more work as human rights uh, people interested in human rights and liberties on democratic design, mm -hmm. how we make sure representative government is rights respecting, mm -hmm. and in a sense where the legislature and representative branches of government is abdicating responsibility, quietly letting the judges make the tough calls, how we call that, name that, and ensure people are involved in that conversation as well.
that's come from so long. So my question really is how do we negotiate the tension between the argument that rights have to be democratic but also that the, the very strength of the ECHR is in some senses that it's beyond politics. So <laughs> how is it possible for this to be the, the strength of rights and also their ultimate weakness and, and how, how, do we, how, ultimately, how ultimately do we negotiate that tension? You win the prize for the $64,000 question. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody up there? University of Life. Uh, when, uh, when the Human Rights Act was introduced some years ago, one of the main selling points was that it would be a bringing human rights home. So it rather puzzles me why we're still subject to the jurisdiction of Strasbourg, because important cases in Britain will have will go before I think at least nine British judges up, up to the Supreme Court, and so then. Having the Court of Strasbourg beyond that, it seems to be that we lack confidence in the abilities of our lads and lasses in Little George Street and the Supreme Court. Well, why can't they make the final decision? And if they did, it would save a vast amount of time and money. Justice wouldn't be delayed. And I can't see any, any downside in, 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 the, in, the, in the rights aspect. And down here. Thank you very much. And down here. Holly von I was a contributor but didn't get in early enough beforehand. Um, I just wanted to agree with Ronan when he was making the point that maybe we shouldn't make it about left or right. One of the points I've made over the past few weeks is I think with human rights, especially when it comes to human rights legislation and treaties, is that we need consensus on what it is we all agree on, what rights we agree we, we all should have. And part of my concern now is that if we do make it about left or right, and bring it into the more obviously political arena, you risk automatically losing a subsection of the people you could persuade. And if you call the human rights um, left, then you're automatically going to um, prevent the agreement of a lot of people who consider themselves to be right-wing. If we're going to make this a universal effort, maybe we should um, make the process of deciding human rights um, less about left or right, even if we have to admit that the majority of people who, who are arguing for human rights would define themselves as more left-wing. Okay, that's great. Uh, should we take a pause now and let's hear from these guys again and see if we can go back? Okay. So the particular question is directed to you, Connor, I think, um, is this issue, it's come up twice now, about the divisive nature of uh, calling um, human rights particularly something that is of the left, um, and there's also the question of, I think, it, although either of you could answer this, it seems to be your answer to the question, why Strasbourg, now we have the Human Rights Act. Um, and David, a question to you about, you talk about state, how the state comes up the power of the, of the private market, and the question to you about claiming rights and also how to make, if you're going to have a democratic nature to rights, underpinning to rights, how do you actually make the... the Democratic structures respectful of rights. Now there are other comments that you and questions that you that you've heard that you might want to pick on, but if you could particularly answer those, because it will particularly address to, to both of you. Comment, you start. Okay, I'll, I'll try and be brief. I'll, I'll need to concentrate a bit on it. Uh, Ronan and Holly and a number of the others of you 
neither right nor left. I did think a lot about that uh, when designing this and came under some pressure to take away this social democratic point saying I'd lose the audience. And I decided not to. I, if you look at the international human rights stuff, it describes a world which is essentially a social democratic world. It allows exceptions, it provides for state controls, but its basic assumption is that we should give everybody a chance to thrive in life. Read the Universal Declaration on Human Rights on which the International Bill of Rights from 1966 and much else is based. So I think it's a deception to pretend that it doesn't fit a particular vision of the world that is a social democratic vision, a combination of the uses of the state to bring out the best of the people with a respect for individual freedom within the context of that state engagement. The question then becomes as to whether or not we should uh, indulge the deception and I thought a lot about that because Ronan and again Polly are absolutely right, I think, that, and this is linking to the $64,000 question too, I think it was Don or David's colleague, about the relationship between democracy and rights. Uh, do we uh, follow my logic and say that rights are uh, manifesto ideas that you put into the political discourse to try and achieve the outcome that you desire. And I essentially say that. And I say you, des you decide that you want something and you argue for it within politics and the language you use is the language of rights and you will encounter other language. And you are using it claiming immoral supremacy but aware that you have to win an argument to succeed. Uh, but you might choose to pretend that you are calling an aid something outside politics. You might choose to pretend that you are producing a morality which is available to you, which trumps politics. And you might, in pretending that, be claiming that there is an obligation outside of politics for everybody to agree with you, not because of your argument, but because you've identified a truth to which everybody must pay homage. In other words, that you embrace a noble lie, actually, to protect your culture from the consequences of a society which designs everything for itself. Uh, I, I think the logic of my position is that there is no fundamental outside politics and that we shouldn't disguise the fact by pretending that there is. I say that there are tendencies that we seek to promote, which we call human rights values and principles, and that these are manifest in our body politic. I agree completely with Colin about how important growing and embedding rights is, and that these rights flow out of the principles and values that make our society tick, and that they involve an attitude to the person which is inherent in our culture today, but precarious. So I end up saying that we uh, have to work to preserve these values and these principles and we articulate them through the language of rights but we do not seek to <coughs> impede the process by putting in place lawyers 
experts, philosophers, specialists who tell us this, the limitations of what we can imagine. We, we fight the fight. Uh, I think that's the best go I can have on it uh, now. On the human rights uh, in the Council of Europe, it's a very, very good question, which we must accept is an important question, put on, put on the agenda by Policy Exchange just recently about why do we stay within the Strasbourg system. Uh, well, there are 47 countries. There is a Council of Europe, which we belong to, have always belonged to, key members of. It has the European Court of Human Rights. Individual applications now are part and parcel of the process of belonging to the European, the Council of Europe. And there is therefore a strong European collegiate argument for remaining within it. I'd also say that there are certain decisions within the European Court of Human Rights that actually have been very valuable in this country. Uh, it's the European Court of Human Rights that has changed the attitude on search under the Terrorism Act 2000, the Gillen and United Kingdom case. It's the European Court of Human Rights that's got us to think differently about what dignity means. In my own country, the country where one of David's many castles is, <laughs> the European Court of Human Rights. Down by now. <laughs> European Court of Human Rights has done a marvelous job in January by pointing out the hypocrisy of the Irish by pretending to be committed to an abortion law that they never enact. And I therefore think it's valuable. And the very last thing I'd say about it is, its decisions produce international obligations on the state that these to be that these decisions should be implemented. These decisions do not impose directly into the country. It's absolutely right that the executive has responsibility and it may choose to consult Parliament over how to or whether to implement. So European Court of Human Rights judges do not intervene directly. Their, their interventions are mediated by the executive branch, and that is as it should be. Before I continue, I'm just going to say if there's anybody who is dying to respond to Colin's main point, which uh, forgive me if I summed it up wrongly, Connor, is basically the human rights at the end of the day is an argument that needs to be made, an argument to, rooted in politics, and in that sense, democratic. Right, that's the first person I saw was you. <laughs> One person, because I'm going to David. I'm going to disagree with him too. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Zoe and I was involved with the project as well. So I didn't catch your name. Zoe. Zoe, Zoe yeah. Zoe, um, Zoe Fiander. Yeah. You're all asking yourselves now. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is basically, I guess, one about the application of Connor's argument. Um, I don't think even David would perhaps disagree that there is a political dimension to rights. But I think the problem comes when that political dimension allows the application of rights in practice to become tribalised. So because there's a political link, there's a tendency to kind of... Um, and retreat into our tribes and say, this isn't part of my tribe, I'm not going to listen. So that's my point, essentially. Thank you. Well, now, I'm going to make a confession for you. I'm telling you something to name it. Who's Ronin? <laughs> you know what your name means? Sorry? You know what your name means? I do. Master of Samurai. <laughs> oh, actually, it means little seed in my <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, there we go. Um, now, let's start with the first one. The big actors other than the state. Couldn't agree more um, uh, because if I run the time, I dropped out one section about things like Google and the banks. Um, I mean, I called for you may not, may not I called for the breakup of banks, not not just because uh, of the structural implications where the banks work, but because they're too powerful. There's no competition. There's some rivalry, uh, and it's bad for the ordinary individual citizen. But they're used 
to the benefit of the people who run the library. Uh, ditto Google. It's not break up of Google, but Google's going to actually have to obey some laws uh, in, in dealing with our privacy. So there are a whole series of big actors, and there's a great tradition, quite right-wing tradition, in, in America of being very suspicious of big corporations. Uh, the, all the antitrust laws there uh, really got that, um, got that uh, uh, origin there. So no, absolutely right. I mean, this is not just about the state. It's just that the state is generally the biggest actor. Uh, and, uh, and not too many companies have run concentration camps. Um, a number of states have. You know. So, uh, and you know, you've got to look at the worst case. And this relates to something Connor said a minute, and I'm going to come back to it. Um, entitlement. Who asked about entitlement? Um, the fear that perhaps it's you again. Uh, that we are, of course, born with the entitlement of certain rights. One of the interesting things about what happened in Tunisia and in Egypt in the last few weeks, is one of the words, other than out, 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 one, one, one of the words that most popularly shouted was liberty, of course. But one of the other ones was dignity. The sense of humiliation and lack of control of their own lives that people felt. And I just think that, 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 that there is, built into us biologically, uh, an expectation of uh, a package of things, very difficult to actually make coherent sometimes, a package of things which relate to dignity and liberty and so on. Now, rule of law and whether it should be in the, in, in just in politics or in, in politics and law and so on. Now, I'm quite sure Robespierre started out with the best of intentions. Commented now. And Stalin <laughs> and Pol Pot and all the rest of them. I mean, I thought they wrote some of those documents which have been so resonant down the ages. But what happens is that when people get into positions of power, the pressures upon them become enormous, the self-defensive behavior of them becomes enormous, and then Stalin basically was paranoid, who's killed vast numbers of people in defense of his own position, really. Um, and that is a very, very extreme version What's happened? What happens in a mild way, even in democratic governments? And that is why if somebody said, "Quietly let the judges make the tough calls." That's what the judges are for. My big battles in Parliament, more often than not, not the ones you necessarily read about, are about stopping what I think of as the sort of lynch mob instincts of large bodies of people. You know, sometimes the tabloids open up, but basically, you get a large group of people together, you will get a lynch mob instinct. Was it Adelaide Stevenson who said, the measure of a free society is a place where it's safe to be unpopular? Yeah? Very, very important point. Now, the people who are going to protect the unpopular tend not to be the people who depend on votes. It's not because they're bad people, generally. You know, you've got lunatics like me who don't care about my vote. But, you know, the, you know my constituents will be writing to me. Uh, but, the, but, the, but the simple truth is, at the end of the day, some things matter more. Um, but for most politicians, they're good people, they're reasonable, but they're going to be driven by the pressures upon them. Just as people are driven by economic pressures, people are driven by the pressures upon them. So you can't trust just a democracy to, to protect people's rights. I mean, and sometimes it's built into the wisdom of, the wisdom of Athens, the ostracism mechanism was, was, was part of this as well. So the courts have got an incredibly important part of this. And the reason I said earlier we are so lucky in England and in Britain uh, thereafter um, was because we had those institutions and the traditions of course going back much, much longer than in some other countries. 
Now, which, which again brings this point about uh, the courts and how you balance it to. Uh, Connor's right about the declaratory nature of, the, uh, of both the European Court and of the Supreme Court. But you may have noticed in the arguments over the European Court, it was what triggered me at the end of the day, was all these stuff about, we'll have to pay £160 million pounds in compensation. It's absolutely rubbish. But it was, this was the line being run up by pusillanimous Whitehall lawyers who didn't want to deal with the issue. And they are. I mean, it's that, again, it's against the pressure upon A Whitehall lawyer gives advice which is designed to avoid losing a case. Not what's in the national interest, not what's in the interest of natural justice, but to avoid losing the case. I've never received the end of it. I've overruled lawyers more times than I care to remember. Um, uh, but uh, but you know, that's what you get. And it's a real problem, again, in having the executive make these decisions. And one of the things I would like to see, one of the things I'd like to see in a bill of rights here, is this declaratory judgment, which the last Labour government used as the excuse to create control orders when the Belmarsh declaratory judgment was made, is a proper mechanism. And the proper mechanism actually should take that declaratory judgment and require Parliament to debate it. And if you like, say to Parliament, did you really mean this? Yeah. You passed this law, did you really mean it? You passed this law, and this woman reading out these names at the, uh, at the cenotaph mm -hmm. uh, was locked up. Well, she was certainly, she was certainly given, the, given a sentence, whether she actually had a sentence or no, but she was sentenced to a prison sentence. Did you really mean that? Of course, you have a vote in the House of Commons. The answer, of course not. And we've changed it. And we haven't got a mechanism to go back. I don't want Parliament to make the first decision in these things. I don't want to depend on people who are dependent on a popular vote to get re-elected to make judgments about individually unpopular people. But I, uh, that's why I want the courts there. But I do want, at the end of the day, them to have the final say, having been forced to deliberate at length. I'm minded to ask from the chair how he thinks Parliament is going to be persuaded to vote in such a mechanism. Because I recall when the Human Rights Act was being debated, and uh, as you might be said, the Declaration of Accountability doesn't force either the executive or Parliament to do anything. In fact, the statement yesterday didn't even need to be made, let alone acted upon. It's completely uh, unilateral decision on the Prime Minister's part and the Home Secretary's part to bring this issue up, yeah. as the court case was months ago. So you can why. Yeah. So when this was debated in Parliament, there was an amendment uh, to, to require uh, Parliament to have to debate the Declaration of Incompatibility. I don't remember anyone on your side of the benches or on any other side of the benches being in favour of this amendment. So how do you think Parliment's going to be well, persuaded to vote in the mechanism? No, no, I, 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 I mean, look, first thing to understand is that parliamentarians um, are not all knowing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Ken Clark's famous knowledge of the Maastricht Treaty is a good demonstration of that. You didn't read it. Um, the, uh, and the truth is, they have vast numbers. Again, it's not blaming them. They have vast numbers of things to think about. And the truth is that when, um, take the control order issue, when the control order came through, I actually said across the floor of the House to Charles Clark, take, after, take six months, take a year, we'll vote it through for you. You don't have to do this yet. Let's get something that works and is, and is civilised before we end. Um, sometimes it suits government to ignore the fact they've got freedom of action. Sometimes it does, I'm afraid, um, which is why I make it explicit. Now, a lot of people who don't like the idea of a Supreme Court on the American level um, don't like it precisely because it would the final power would effectively rest of the court, it would override 
Parliament, and they're, and they're very strong Democrats, they don't want that. <coughs> we said to them, in terms, you know, the refer-back means it stops with you, and I'd actually put rules on the refer-back. I, I might even put <coughs> a secret ballot uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the vote that came back, so it couldn't be whipped. Um, but uh, the refer-back actually gives the power back to Parliament, but it does allow you to ask, did you mean it? Think again. There's vast amounts of law. Law goes through Parliament so fast, like a sausage machine these days, that large numbers of mistakes are made. So in ordinary practical terms, it would be a very good idea too, it would mean the quality of the law we had would be a hundred times better. And I actually don't think, I think if you've got to have the debate on a Bill of Rights, a domestic British, the beginnings of a British written constitution is what we're talking about here, then in fact you would get uh, people who at the moment oppose it, if we talked about this mechanism or mechanism like this, to actually come up and support it. Um, right, we've got 10 minutes left, um, and I think we're going to, to do this in the style in which we began, the horizontal worship here, and we're going to end with all of you, so it's just whoever I see, I'm afraid it won't be anyone who's spoken already, so it's one, two, three, four, one more, because it's one minute each, we've got five minutes, okay, we've got one, one, one minute, 30 seconds, one minute each, and then we'll see if one more person wants to come back. I'm afraid I took the slot of responding to you, David. Hi, thanks. I'm Alice from the Met, and a horizontalist. Um, <laughs> I, my point can be very briefly, which is we've talked a lot today about what we think human rights should be, what we consider to be fundamental, and so on. And I think, in a way, for me, the heart of the question is who is included in the we. And it seems to me that David's campaigns, for example, in relation to control orders, uh, were, were very valid because people were being taken out of society and removed effectively from, from the rule of law and quite right too that human rights comes into play. But the trouble is, and why I agree with Connor, is that actually the question of who is the we is a much broader one simply than those cases. And increasingly, given the actions of the coalition, I think more and more people in their powerlessness and even destitution will be removed from that we have already have indeed no effective voice, which is why I think to remove social rights, as David seems to wish to do, notwithstanding the fact that the UK does have binding obligations as a signatory to the International Covenant on like American Social Rights, I should say, but let's leave that aside, but even in the political sphere, the we has to include people whose rights are at stake, who might become destitute, who, who might be effectively imprisoned in a care home because they've lost their mobility allowance, uh, and so on. And so the question of who is the we, and again, the universalism, we mustn't be complacent that that we doesn't include people who are utterly powerless in this country and, and facing increasingly severe you know, precariousness and, and the, the threat, at least, of destitution. So I think there's, there's a kind of complacency that can creep in about who we are or who we decide what rights so. are. I'm sorry, I have to say no, something. I'm sorry, it has to be if people have not spoken. <laughs> My name is Lucy Bailey, I'm a producer at the BBC World Service and um, this argument is um, reminding me of how um, arguments for so-called weak judicial review are, can be and are often very um, increasingly persuasive in countries with well-functioning democracies in the luxurious position that we have where Parliament respects the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court can make a recommendation Parliament will be civilised in it. But as a, as a World Service producer, recently, and in general, it's obvious that human rights really are a strong political rallying cry in developing countries. 
where their universality is a really is a real key to the power of those arguments. And I wanted to try and get at the international dimension a little bit and ask both both speakers what they thought of how important the international dimension was to maintaining and upholding the universality argument of rights, and if the determination of rights should, in any or all circumstances, be taken away from the courts, what does that mean for the international dimension? But to bring it back to what we're trying to focus on today, about whether it's a left-right thing, I'm kind of assuming that it might be, in as much as the left is more internationalist, um, traditionally, historically, than the right, and therefore that looking at the perceived problems, the real problems with international human rights bodies, in which case we're talking about courts, that's something that we really need to address if we're not going to lose the argument globally. We might sort it out in our lovely little luxurious pond, but for the, for the global argument, we have to look at the international dimension as well. Thank you. Hi, my name's Raha. I'm a master's student at the LSE. Um, I just wanted to ask a question to David Davies. Um, basically, from the general um, hi. <laughs> from the general impression I get from the sort of minimalist on the state part, the minimalist account of human rights, um, how can one avoid sort of blanket policies like indefinite immigration detention and avoid the sort of like the protection of the people as much as the desire for the state to protect itself? Thank you. Joe Hoover, I did contribute to the, uh, the project on occasion. I don't really have a question, but so much as I wanted to underline uh, Connor's position and bring out one thing which I think is a real red herring that uh, Mr. David has used throughout. Um, first off, I think Connor is absolutely right that human rights, the future is left, and in fact, history has been left. And the left position is about universal emancipation. And human rights, if they're about anything, are about universal emancipation. There's lots of discussion to be had about what that means and how far it should go. But I think even if you look at the history, of human rights, uh, key human rights documents. Stalin was pretty scared of them. Uh, the Soviet states didn't appreciate what the human rights said about the power of the state. So it's wrong to pretend that somehow supporting human rights as a social democratic project in any way entails totalitarianism. And that's a real red herring and I think actually isn't very helpful for the discussion. And anyone who wants to oppose the left future of rights, I think has to deal with this fundamental question of what does universal emancipation mean outside of the leftist context, which takes seriously that emancipation is more than political rights, which isn't to say that it's different from political rights, but it's more than that. So I just wanted to add that to uh, support of Connor. Thank you. David, uh, I'll, I might have to let you have the last word, but I'll see if I can get Connor in. But actually, there was overlap between the first and the last question. Uh, what was the first one you about, about who we are and what universal emancipation Oh, the, 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 the lady from the World Service. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 forget it. Sorry, I, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me. I just wanted to, there was, I think there was something, a common thread between the first and the last question about when you narrow the definition of rights and the way you do, you leave out a lot of humanity. Well, let me start. I object to the phrase minimalist. I mean, if you think minimalist, you know, the right to uh, not be locked up, the right not to be mistreated, the right to vote, all the, they're minimalist, go to half the world, and they wouldn't view them, go to Egypt, they wouldn't view that as minimalist, that's actually incredibly important, and my argument is, you've got to have a hierarchy, you can't just say, uh, you know, that, 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 those are sort of givens, you know. Secondly, you know, left is history, the history of human rights in this country predates uh, democratic politics. It's neither left nor right. It goes back to structural institutions in this country. And that's why I said we are lucky here. 
uh, in, in those things. We have those property rights and those rights of control, controlling my castle, all the rest of it. You know, it's, it is actually fundamentally more, it's got, it, it goes back before either left or right had a say. Okay, Connor, going back to my opinion, this country apparently, universalism, this country, how do we understand? Yeah, uh, I'll just respond to you very quickly. Uh, one of the advantages of my thought, I think, is that you can speak directly to the universal around the world without appearing to be imperialist or colonial because you root the idea of human rights in values and in principles, which you say are absolutely central to lived experience. Values of respect for dignity, representative government, and legality. These are not the reserve of us. We're lucky to have them in a strong state at the moment here. We might lose them. And other countries can tell us about these things and about their value and their culture and history. So we resist the idea that it's imperialist, that we have it and nobody else has. We are, however, not going to say that the courts are the sole repositories of these values and principles, because that lets the culture off the hook. Uh, I've done, just done a little book on social rights, and what's depressing is some countries that have these fantastic courts that guarantee all sorts of social and economic rights, and actually they've got terrible poverty. You know, this is David Davis point, absolutely important. And the very last point is, I'm very nervous about arguments about liberalism and democracy, which claim human rights as a Western idea, which define us in opposition to other cultures. And that is why I'm extremely anxious about David Cameron's speech the other day in Munich, because he does that. What defines muscular liberalism? Human rights. What justifies restricting what you can say in universities in case you, you run up against hate speech? Human rights. And that's a version of human rights I just don't recognize. Beginning of another debate. Thank you very much. Sorry about the question of the actual question we didn't get to answer. And thank you all very much. Big round of applause to everybody in the room.